1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is chapter 14 in our group learning program. It's titled, Cultivating Healthy Mental States, Loving Kindness, Compassion, Sympathetic Joy, and Equanimity. This is one of the shortest chapters in the entire book, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. You actually wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment unless you understood these four healthy mental states what they are, how to cultivate them, and also what they remedy, because essentially what they are is additional tools that the Buddha is providing to help you transform the mind away from this unenlightened mental state to the enlightened mental state, where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. These four healthy mental states are so important that it wasn't only Gautama Buddha who was actually teaching them during his lifetime. There were other people who were teaching them as well, and this is why we often refer to them as the brahma Viharas, because even the Brahmin, the Brahmin priest who existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, they were actually teaching these as part of their teachings as well. And because the Buddha understood they were so important in order to cultivate a healthy mental state, He incorporated those into his entire path to enlightenment, where you move this mind from this unenlightened mental state to being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, where the mind no longer experiences any discontentedness. And cultivating these four healthy mental states are really important as part of that journey. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today, that you've been interested to join us to learn and actively understand the Buddhist teachings, whether you're joining live or you're listening to this on the replay through either Facebook, YouTube, our podcast, or one of the other ways that we distribute content out into the world. So thank you all for joining. Pleased to see that you guys have decided to continue forward into the new year with cultivating a healthy mind through learning and progressing on this path to enlightenment. This class today, it's going to actually be just me talking a very short period of time, there's not a whole lot for me to actually discuss, it's really just explaining to you what the four healthy mental states are, and what they actually transform, and how to actually cultivate these healthy mental states in your own practice most of this class is going to be based on your questions and if you'd like to talk about examples or you have certain situations in your life that you're curious about how to apply these different mental states into your practice we can talk about all of those things because as you know if you've joined this program before you can ask questions by putting those into facebook youtube or zoom and our moderators will see your questions in the comment section and be sure your questions get asked during the class or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's go ahead and discuss these four healthy mental states. As I mentioned, they're oftentimes referred to as brahma or the brahma Brahma or Brahmin. Brahmin were the priests during the lifetime of the Buddha brahma was the way that they referred to god during the lifetime of the buddha so what brahma Vihara means is the way to dwell with the god with god is these are kind of the dwellings of being with god whether you have any belief in god or not isn't important you don't have to have a belief in god but that's where this name the brahma vaharas comes from is it's connected to the brahmin priest and the brahmin priest were worshiping Brahma, which a lot of people today refer to either as God or Allah or other ways. And this word vahara is the dwellings, the dwellings of the God. So by learning and cultivating these healthy mental states, I'm not sure 100%, but I think what they were teaching within the Hindu tradition and the Brahmin priests were, the more that you're cultivating these healthy mental states, you're dwelling more closely to God or Brahma. But the Buddha cast them in terms of what we need to be doing in order to be practicing to develop this healthy mental state. And by practicing these four healthy mental states, it improves our decision making. We make wiser decisions and we cultivate more healthy relationships, both personally and professionally. When we practice loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, we have the healthy mental states that we need in order to cultivate many of the other factors on the path. So starting with the first one titled loving kindness. Loving kindness is something that we've talked about in this program before. It's active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, where you're not judging that I'm only going to have loving kindness for these beings and not these beings, but I'm going to have active goodwill, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're into, no matter what I feel that they've done to me or I've done to them, I'm just going to generally cultivate and permeate in the mind this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. This is a remedy for the unwholesome quality of anger, hatred, ill will, and all the lesser versions of that, because there's lesser versions of this as well. We talk about the anger, hatred, ill will as part of the three poisons, the three unwholesome roots, the three fires, and other parts of the teachings. We talk about loving kindness and how loving-kindness is meant to remedy anger, hatred, and ill will, but those are kind of on one side of the spectrum. They're pretty strong, but there's also this kind of irritation or this annoyance or this dislike that the mind sometimes has, and it can become hostile or harsh or ungentle during those times, and it can kind of lash out at people and when we're lashing out at people we're creating harshness in our relationships and it makes it difficult for us to have our personal professional relationships blossom so by practicing loving kindness what you're doing is you're moving out this anger hatred ill will and all those lesser versions and you're bringing in this active interest and seeing all beings be well this active goodwill, so that now through your intentions speech and actions you can start interacting through this healthy mental state of loving-kindness. The way that you cultivate this in the mind is through loving-kindness meditation. This is something that I've taught in this program on Wednesdays that I did a four-part series on it, and then we rotate every other Wednesday now where we do loving-kindness meditation. But you can't just cultivate loving kindness in meditation and then it just shows up at other parts of your day automatically. It's not an autopilot. So you cultivate loving kindness in your meditation, but then you practice it in daily life through your intention, speech and actions, being polite, kind, friendly and respectful again through your intention, speech, and actions. And this will help you to wear down and wear away even the most stubborn, most difficult, most harsh aspects of the mind where there's this harshness that comes out and maybe venting at others or rage or other aspects of where the mind kind of looks out in fear almost for enemies around us. Instead, we can just have this active goodwill this genuine interest in all beings being well there's no being in your life that you should not have loving kindness for even people in the past or even people currently that have done harmful things in your life it doesn't help you to hold on to any anger hatred or ill will it doesn't mean you need to be best friends with those people it doesn't mean you even need to interact with those people it doesn't mean that you'll even ever see those people ever again but in order to move out these unhealthy mental states of anger, hatred, ill will, and those lesser versions, you would like to move in this loving kindness and cultivate and permeate this loving kindness in the mind. The Buddha talked about loving kindness extensively at different parts of his teachings. At one point, he gives this very vivid depiction of what he means by loving kindness and what he means by practicing loving kindness. And what he means by eradicating hatred in the mind. He talks about if some people were to saw you from limb to limb, you know, two people took a saw and they were sawing your wrist and your elbow and your shoulder and your hip and your knee and your ankle and all the different joints in the body. And if these people were sawing you from limb to limb to limb, essentially breaking up the body through this aggressive uh, mechanism of using a, a saw, the Buddha says if hatred arises in your mind during that experience, then you're not practicing his teachings. Not that any of us would probably be in that situation or we don't look to be in that situation, but he uses this imagery to help you understand that even when people do the most horrible things to us, we should always have loving kindness for them. So if you can cultivate and permeate loving kindness in the mind to the point where if somebody was sawing you limb to limb to limb, you would understand that this is their lack of wisdom, their lack of moral conduct, their lack of mental discipline. And you can reside having loving kindness for them in that situation. Then when somebody cuts you off in traffic, it's pretty easy to have loving kindness for that person. Or if somebody bumps into you and you're walking down the street or in a mall, it's pretty easy to have loving kindness for that person. Or if somebody talks harsh or aggressive to you or unkind in some way, it's pretty easy to have loving kindness for that person. If you can cultivate in the mind to the point where these horrible acts are being done to this physical body and you can still have loving kindness and compassion for this being or these multiple beings, and not have any anger, hatred, and ill will towards them. Just understand that it's a lack of their own wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. A second Brahma-vihara that the Buddha talks about is compassion. This is concern for the misfortune of others. When people are having unfortunate circumstances, we should have concern for that, and it helps us to remedy any kind of indifference, worry, or anxiety. The Buddha talks about Certain fortunate things that happen to us in our life and certain unfortunate or misfortunes that happen to us in our life. And he says, anything that you see somebody else experiencing in terms of good fortune or certain aspects of their life that appear to be going really wonderful. The Buddha says that at some point in this life or your previous lives, you've already experienced those wholesome things you've already experienced that good fortune. And likewise, any misfortunes that you observe other people experiencing, he says either in this life or previous lives, you've experienced those same things. So if you can keep that in your mind that any good fortunate things or any misfortune that people are experiencing, you've experienced these same things. So even though now you might have a certain amount of resources, for clothing, for shelter, for medical care, for food, and things like this. Those are things that you have right now, but the Buddha is saying, either in this life or some previous lives, you didn't have that good fortune necessarily. You had misfortunes, that you were maybe poor, or you were impoverished, or you were experiencing famine, or sickness, or illness. And likewise, if you see somebody that is very wealthy and well-off, then the Buddha is saying at some other time in your previous lives, you've experienced these same things. And this can help us to cultivate this concern for the misfortune of others, because even though now in this life, you might be better off than some other people that you see, the reason why you're better off is that you were able to make decisions based on wisdom to improve your life, but there were also people along the way that were helping you and that we're reaching out a hand and ensuring that you had what you needed to make your progress forward. So whether it was our mother, our father, our brother, our sister, our grandparents, there were other people along the way that helped us to accomplish the things that we accomplish. And the Buddha even says this, that he says that it would be very difficult to find somebody or any being, even animals and other beings. He said, any being that is in existence today, it would be nearly impossible for you to find a being that has not previously been one of your family members. So essentially, anybody that you come in contact with, a human being, an animal, or even other beings as well, all of these beings have been our relatives at some point whether they were our mother, a father, brother, sister, or son, or daughter, or some other relative, when you see that snake, or you see that scorpion, or you see that cockroach, or that ant, these are all beings that have been your relatives at some other point. Cows, and pigs, and chickens, and all these other animals that are in the world, and including humans as well. The Buddha says we've had so many countless lives that all of these beings have actually been relatives at some point in the past. So if you keep some of these teachings in mind, it can help set the mind in a good direction to cultivate this concern for the misfortune of others. That rather than looking down on people with arrogance and pride and thinking that they're bad off because of one thing or another, and we kind of maybe shun those people or look down on them, instead, we should look to see how we can help these other beings and not have indifference and an uncaring attitude that instead not worrying about these misfortunes that others have, but instead having concern for them. Because a worried mind is going to be shaken up and it's going to be discontent because it sees all the problems in the world. But a concerned mind sees the problems but they also see the solutions they know the solutions to those problems which is wise decision making and having this wisdom of the buddhist teachings and a concerned mind can see all the solutions and it can maintain its contentedness so having this concern for the misfortune of others allows the mind to stay in this peaceful calm serene content mind with joy because we understand that all of these misfortunes that are happening in the world it's based on our own decisions It's the cause and effect or the action and result, the natural law of gamma that anything we're experiencing in terms of misfortune or good fortune is all a result of our own decisions. And that not just goes for us, but others as well. So if we're able to help others who are less fortunate than us, then we can try to do that in various ways. And if we're not able to for any particular reasons, then we find other ways that we can help and try to find ways to use our time, effort, energy, and resources to help others, which we'll talk about towards the end of today's class. We'll be talking about generosity as well. Cultivating this compassion for others and all beings, not just human beings, but animals as well, then we can now move away from this indifference and this worry and this anxiety where the mind is shaken up and instead just have concern for the misfortune of others. And then where appropriate, we can look for ways to help them. The way that you cultivate this is you cultivate it through aspects of the path that you already know. If you remember right mindfulness or awareness of mind where you have awareness of certain aspects of the mind, and we talk about the four foundations of mindfulness as part of right mindfulness, but part of the way that I explain mindfulness to just help you get started is awareness of mind. So if you have awareness of the unwholesome qualities that are arising in the mind, like if you observe that when you walk past certain people, you do look down on them, or you are indifferent, or you really aren't interested in helping other people, and you see these unwholesome qualities arising in the mind, then with that mindfulness and being aware that you haven't cultivated compassion to the level that you need in order to attain enlightenment, then you apply right effort to eliminate the unwholesome qualities of indifference and worry and anxiety, an uncaring attitude towards other beings, and you arise or you cultivate this compassion or this concern for others. So this is actually done through daily activities. There's not a specific meditation that the Buddha taught in order to cultivate compassion. Oftentimes, loving kindness and compassion go hand in hand because as you're cultivating loving kindness in meditation and you're practicing loving kindness in daily life, oftentimes compassion comes right along with that. But you do need to take a more active approach with compassion and as you observe people having unfortunate situations realize that you've been in those same situations before and if that was you in that unfortunate situation wouldn't you like it if somebody was able to reach out a hand and give you a hand and the other way to imagine this is if you see someone in an unfortunate situation Think of this as your mom or your dad or your grandmother, your grandfather, your brother, your sister, your son or your daughter that is in this unfortunate circumstance. And what would you do in those circumstances? Would you lend a hand and try to see what you could do to maybe help out? And remember, we've always got to find the middle way with that. But walking away and just being indifferent or having an uncaring attitude isn't what an enlightened being would do. It doesn't mean that an enlightened being is going to help every single person they come in contact with. That's not possible. That would be permanence. But at least there's a cultivation and a practice of compassion or concern for these beings that are unfortunate. And that's what you would like to get to. And the way that you do that is through being aware of the mind and identifying the unwholesome qualities through right mindfulness and then taking right effort in order to eliminate those unwholesome qualities and arise the wholesome quality of compassion, let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about these first two Brahma Viharas. And the way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. The moderators will see your comments, or you can raise your hand in Zoom electronically, and someone will call on you to be able to let you ask your question directly.
2: Another term. as for the of love and kindness it seems that it's an active goodwill so it's not just a mental condition how to make this love this condition of the mind of loving uh, be active
1: okay so we think about this as a healthy mental state as opposed to a condition because a condition the mind is unenlightened if there's conditioning in the mind So think about loving, kindness, compassion, and all the other Brahma Think of them as healthy mental states as opposed to a certain condition. And then you're right. It's an active goodwill. It's actively doing something. It's not just thinking about it and sitting back and be like, yeah, I love everybody. I don't hate anybody. It's all about your actions. It's about your deeds. It's about the work that you do and applying effort and energy and being motivated to actually provide this active goodwill and you can do that as simply through being polite kind friendly and respectful through your intention speech and actions that's the easiest way to explain it there's lots of different examples that we could give and you guys could maybe talk about some things that you've experienced in your life about how you've practiced loving kindness or if you're curious If you are practicing loving kindness in that situation, but any time that you see the opposite of loving kindness, which is anger, hatred, ill will, and those lesser versions where the mind is irritated or annoyed or having dislike and, uh, you know, kind of being disgruntled or harsh or maybe even aggressive at certain times when you see that arise in the mind then you know that those unwholesome qualities are still there and you haven't fully cultivated this loving kindness yet and you need to do the work to actually cultivate it through your actions it's not just through thinking about it it's through actively doing the work
2: as for compassion how can one differentiate between practicing compassion and having craving to help all people
1: so If you're able to observe that in certain situations you're able to help and you have the resources to help in terms of time, effort, energy, or resources, and you're able to help, then you help. And in certain situations where you're not able to and you observe that, then you know that in those situations you aren't able to help them. And during that time when you choose not to help somebody, the mind can still reside content. Whereas if you experience discontentedness because you weren't able to help someone, this means the mind has craving to help people. So this is where you understand that there's no craving-desire attachment that is beneficial or wholesome or that is going to lead to wholesome results. As long as there's craving-desire attachment, that mental longing with a strong eagerness, even to help people, If you have this mental longing and strong eagerness to help people, it's going to lead to discontentedness at some time because the mind is longing for that, clinging to it and holding on to it, and you're not going to be able to do that permanently. You're not going to be able to permanently help people in your life in terms of every single situation. You should be able to help people all throughout your life, but you're not going to be able to help people in every single situation. And when you choose not to help people, observe the mind through mindfulness and see is the mind discontent because of that? Or can you maintain your peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, just recognizing that you're not able to help this person or you're choosing not to help this person in this particular situation?
2: Manal has a question, she writes, how can one train the mind to observe experiences and judge an experience? without judging the people in those experiences.
1: You would like to eliminate judgment from your practice 100%. The way that I describe judgment is it's putting yourself above or below somebody else and trying to determine what is wholesome for other people. So if you look down on somebody and you judge them for the things that they're involved in, thinking that they're unwholesome and you're better than them, this is judgment. We need to eliminate that in order to get to enlightenment what you need to cultivate in the mind is discernment or wise decision making where you make wise decisions about the choices and decisions that you're making in life let me give you an example nick probably remembers this when he was here in thailand when nick was here in thailand there was a situation where we were walking down the street and we saw three people that were obviously in need of food. Their ribs were sunken in, they were very dirty, they were sitting on the floor. They were most likely actively using drugs at different times in their life and that's probably what was going on. And I happen to know one of the people pretty well and usually when I'm around him, I smell a lot of alcohol. So I suspect that these people were using drugs and alcohol quite a bit. So in this situation, I don't judge them for using drugs and alcohol because at one time I used drugs and alcohol, not to the degree that they're involved in them, but I did used to use drugs and alcohol in this life and probably in prior lives as well. So rather than look down on them or judge them, uh, we chose to go get some supplies, some water and some food. Uh, I forget exactly what we got 100%, but we gave them some things that would help them along in their life to sustain their life in terms of food and water and we didn't judge them and we didn't look down on them and we didn't look up to them we just okay here's some beings that are in some need of help we've got some time we've got some money here's the stores right here we can just walk about 20 or 30 meters and we'll be able to purchase some things and then bring it to them and let them benefit from the results of that and in that situation that was the right thing to do but then about a week or two later we were walking at a temple and we were out on the outskirts of chiang mai we were kind of in the foothills of the mountains at a forest temple and we had entered into this temple environment kind of like a forest and a park and a gentleman came up to us and he said can you guys give me some money in order to go to this other city which is you know kind of like 30 minutes away from chiang mai he said all i need is 50 baht, which is about $1.75. Nick and I could have very easily given him $1.75, but in this situation, I had a feeling that this individual didn't truly need that 50 baht in order to travel. I didn't look down on him, I didn't think he was a bad person, but he was very cleanly dressed. He seemed to be waiting for us. He was very respectful. He lied to me. I'm sure he lied to Nick as well. And instead of just giving him the 75 cents, which would have been easy for us to do, instead, I asked him, I said, have you eaten today? And he said, yes, I've already eaten. I said, oh, well, if you're hungry, you're welcome to come along with us to go to lunch and you're welcome to join us and, and I'll take you out to lunch if you need some food. He's like, no, 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 I've already had food. I would just like some money. And i was like okay well if you decide you would like some food you know just let us know and he looked to me and he looked at nick and both of us decided not to give him this money because i know that he could very easily get a ride to this other city it's so close and it's quite easy to get a ride to somewhere else and we had just entered the temple and for somebody to immediately approach us and ask for money it's just not a normal thing that you would see And in that situation as well, I didn't look down on this person. I didn't judge them. I didn't think they were a bad person, was even willing to invite them to come to lunch with us. But in terms of a wise decision, I felt like if I would have given this person money in that situation, it would just encourage people to be waiting at the front of the temple so that as soon as people come in, they're going to ask for money as opposed to Nick and I just happen to be on our way down the street. Observe these individuals that were needing food and water, and we chose on our own to make that offering to them, as opposed to this other individual who was asking for it and wanting it, and wasn't interested in any kind of other item that we were willing to offer, but only wanted that 50 baht. And there was craving there, of course. So you have to look at each situation and make a wise decision. And each situation has so many different variables it doesn't mean that every single person that's waiting at the temple, I would never give them money. And it also means that every single person who's in need of something that's sitting on the street and maybe has their ribs sunking in and is dirty in terms of their physical appearance, doesn't mean I'm gonna help or be able to help every single one of those types of individuals either. So you have this practice of practicing loving kindness and compassion in daily life, in terms of these type of things, but you realize that you're not gonna be able to help in every single situation. And these are just situations where there's generosity as part of it too, because it wasn't just loving kindness and compassion in these situations, there was a practice of generosity. So those things are kind of coming together here. But loving kindness and compassion aren't necessarily always going to involve generosity. Loving kindness can just be that when you're walking down the street, you see somebody and you smile and say hello. And that can be loving kindness. Or like today when I went out to the market before I left, I asked my wife and our brother who's here, do you guys need anything from the market? They said, no, we don't need anything from the market. And I said, okay. And then on the way to the market and at the market, I still bought my wife a couple of pieces of fruit and I bought her brother a couple pieces of fruit, even though they said they don't need anything, I still decided to buy them a few things while I was there in order to practice generosity, yes, but practicing loving kindness, showing an interest and in having this genuine interest and in seeing them be well. And I'm doing this in order to cultivate in my own mind this loving kindness. And cultivating in my own mind this generosity and this willingness to let go and not hold on to things so tightly. So you develop this practice where it just becomes part of who you are as an individual. Not that you're holding on to it as a self-identity or anything like that, but you just make it as part of your discernment or your wise decisions because you know that through cultivating these healthy mental states in your own mind, it's good for your own practice. To be able to cultivate this and then practice it throughout your daily life
2: well it seems that for many people practicing loving and kindness and compassion for people who are reacting or responding in a kind respectful way is easy but when it comes to people who are aggressive or speaking in a harsh way would it be wise to also practice loving kindness towards them
1: Yes, you should practice loving kindness and compassion towards everyone. And loving kindness and compassion doesn't always mean you need to say something or necessarily do something overtly. Like what we've been talking about so far is, yes, doing something actively. But in some situations, one of the most loving and kind things you can do is just remain quiet in a certain situation. So there's some situations that are going to be needing of you to have certain intentions, speech and actions in order to practice loving kindness and there's other situations where it might just make sense for you to just to remain quiet in a certain situation and say nothing at all and that can be a practice of loving kindness as well. And this is where the Buddha doesn't give us an exact formula that says if somebody does this, then you should do that and if somebody does this you should do that. Because this is like a decision tree and following rules. Instead, he's providing this guidance and helping you cultivate these qualities in the mind. And then it's your free will choices that you make wise decisions based on what you feel is best in that given situation, because there's so many variables involved there's the person or the people involved, there's you, there's the time of day, there's what you're doing in that particular day, there's the amount of resources that you have at any particular time in your life, there's certain activities that you're doing in a certain day that you need to attend uh, to, but you need to find this middle where you're not just selfishly pursuing your own interest in your unkind or impolite or disrespectful to people. Instead, you're practicing this politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect through your intention, speech, and actions, and you're making that part of what you do on a normal, regular, daily basis with everybody and anybody around you. And that doesn't necessarily always mean that you're going to have the time or the ability to make a generous offering. Like these examples that I've used so far are taking my time, effort, energy, and resources, as well as practicing generosity. Generosity really helps to cultivate these mental states that we're talking about. And that's why, even though it's not part of the Brahma Viharas, I included generosity in this chapter. And I included it in today's talk because generosity really helps to cultivate these two healthy mental states specifically, really, really well in the mind. So oftentimes when we are practicing loving kindness and compassion, there's generosity that goes along with it. But there's not always generosity with loving kindness and compassion. It's not required necessarily. So when people are harsh or aggressive or unkind to us, you need to even practice loving kindness and compassion in those situations as well, because it can be really easy to practice loving kindness and compassion with someone who's practicing loving kindness and compassion with you. But the real challenge to your practice, where it's really gonna test your mind and you will need to break through some walls and really step your practice up, is is when somebody is impolite, unkind, unfriendly and disrespectful to you, what do you do in that situation? Do you still have anger, hatred and ill will that arises or any kind of irritation, annoyance or dislike? Or instead, you arise this genuine interest in seeing this being or this collection of beings be well and ensuring that you practice this act of goodwill towards them.
2: Do you agree that practicing love and kindness uh, perfectly will eliminate 100% of anger, hatred and will so that one will not experience any anger towards any person in a situation?
1: Yes, but with that, you need to eliminate craving-desire-attachment as well, because as long as there's craving-desire-attachment there, it's going to ultimately move to a painful feeling as part of the craving-desire-attachment. So that's why as part of the three poisons, it's craving, anger, and ignorance, and then the remedy to this, to transform the three poisons, is generosity, loving-kindness, and wisdom. So while loving kindness is going to eradicate ill will, you wouldn't be able to actually do that if you're not also working on eradicating and eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So that's why we do breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And that's why in daily life we practice generosity and loving kindness as well. Both of these are working towards the ultimately the same goal, which is eliminating discontentedness from the mind.
2: Thanks, teacher. No
1: more questions. All right. So let's go to the next two, which is sympathetic joy and equanimity. Sympathetic joy is the third of the four Brahma This is a feeling of joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So if you have an experience at work or at home or with your neighbors or other people or other people's children, Rather than having envy or jealousy or pride about things that are going on in your own life and contrasting that to what other people are experiencing and allowing envy, jealousy, and pride to arise, you instead arise this sympathetic joy, which is the healthy mental state that transforms envy, jealousy, and pride. So if you see one of your friends get a new car, or a new pair of shoes, or a new house, or a new job, or one of your coworkers gets a certain promotion at work, or you see a certain job that you applied for and other people applied for too, and you maybe didn't get the job, but someone else did, rather than being envious or jealous and allowing that to come through your intention, speech, and actions, which is gonna put a strain on your relationship, instead, what you do is you arise sympathetic joy this feeling of joy for other success, even though you didn't contribute to it. So congratulate your coworker or congratulate your neighbors or your friends, people that you see that are experiencing certain beneficial outcomes and certain success. You can congratulate them. You can let them know you feel joy for their success. And that's so wonderful that they've been able to experience that success. And if you don't have craving, desire, attachment to have those same things, then it's much easier to arise this sympathetic joy. But as long as you have craving, desire, attachment to wanting the same things as the people around you, or there's this arrogance, this conceit, or this pride where you want to be above other people, if you have that in the mind, then when you see other people experiencing certain successes in their life, then you're going to have this envy and jealousy when they are doing things or accomplishing things that are maybe perceived as being better than what you have. So instead of trying to measure and compare what other people have versus what you have, and when you see somebody else has something better than you, you want to either be at that same level or higher. Instead of that, which is a destructive mental state, which is unwholesome and is only going to Put strain on your relationships instead of allowing that to come through your intention, speech, and actions. Instead, arise this joy when you see other people being successful around you because it's great to see your brothers and sisters, and your mother and your father not necessarily in this particular life, but remember your friends, your co workers, people you've never met before, your neighbors. Think of them as your grandmother, your grandfather, your mother, your father, your brothers and sisters, your sons and your daughters. And if you think this way, it's like, what would you do if you saw your son or your daughter or your mother or your father have something really beneficial happen to them? Well, have joy for their success. So if you understand that all these beings in the world have been your family members at some other point in time then it's easier to arise this joy for their success. And if you also understand that any successes that other people are experiencing, you've already experienced those same successes, either in this life or some other life, and they just weren't permanent. Those successes weren't permanent. So if these people have worked hard or applied some effort and they were able to make some decisions that led to certain successes, even if you didn't contribute to it, have this joy for their success and the way that you cultivate this in the mind there isn't a magical pill there isn't a potion there isn't even a meditation that you could sit down and just cultivate sympathetic joy the buddha didn't teach that Instead, what you do is you understand the unwholesome qualities of envy, jealousy, and pride. And when you see those starting to arise, because if you're practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind, and you identify those unwholesome qualities of envy, jealousy, and pride starting to arise, then you apply right effort, which is to take the effort to eliminate those unwholesome qualities and replace it with the wholesome qualities. So in a situation where maybe a coworker comes to you or a neighbor comes to you and shares with you some of their success, and when you feel some envy or jealousy or some pride starting to arise where you want to be above them, instead, cut that off, let it go. And even though you might not feel it a hundred percent, even if you can put together a few words and say, oh, I feel joy for your success. That's absolutely wonderful. It's wonderful to see that you've accomplished your goals, or it's wonderful to see that you've been able to realize the objectives and goals that you've set out for. I'm very pleased for you, right? Even though those same things aren't happening in your life, rather than allow the envy and jealousy to come into the mind and start to permeate and pollute the mind where you see those unwholesome qualities starting to arise you cut those off and let them go and then bring in this sympathetic joy and then it gets easier and easier each time you do it at the beginning it might not be easy for you if you're someone who tends to be envious and jealous if you know that about you and that's what you've experienced then it might be a bit challenging. You might just be very difficult to kind of put together a few words when you see other people be successful. But if you just dwell in that envy and jealousy, you're not breaking through. You're not coming out of that. You're not permeating in the mind this sympathetic joy and leaving behind the envy and jealousy. So where you see the pollution of envy and jealousy coming or starting to arise or it's already in the mind right now for various situations that you're involved in then you know what the solution is to that buddha is giving you the solution which is the sympathetic joy to arise that in the mind and that's what antidotes and transforms the mind to now practice the brahma vahara that's going to eradicate this unwholesome qualities of envy jealousy and pride equanimity has two different components to it. So I'm gonna explain it in two different pieces. There's this one part of equanimity, which is mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. So even in difficult situations, being able to maintain your composure, being able to maintain the calmness, being able to have this evenness of temper, because even in difficult situations, if you allow the mind to become uncalm, then you're not gonna be able to practice mindfulness, you're not gonna be able to practice concentration, and you're not gonna be able to access the wisdom in order to make wise decisions to improve the situation. So if you get a phone call that one of your loved ones, uh, someone who's really close to you is in the hospital, and they're asking you to come to the hospital to make some important decisions, rather than just throw everything up in the air and oh my goodness and grabbing things and bolting out the door and jumping in the car and potentially getting into a car accident yourself and maybe making the situation worse because now you're not available for this person to make wise decisions. What the Buddha is saying is, okay, even in this difficult situation, maintain your calmness maintain your composure, maintain this evenness of temper, because when the mind is calm, then you can have mindfulness or awareness of mind. You can have concentration or singleness of mind, and then you can access wisdom, and you can make wise decisions. So rather than bolting out the door and grabbing your car keys and running for the car, instead just gradually put things down, maintain your composure, gather the things that you need, make some wise decisions, and make your way to the hospital, for example, if that's what you need to do. Or if you hear that your children are misbehaving in school and the teacher is calling you into a conference or for a meeting to discuss the challenges that your child is encountering, rather than reject this and think that our children are perfect, in this difficult situation, realize the most important thing to do is to remain calm, keep your composure and listen, ask questions. Because somebody has observed your child doing things that they feel are unwholesome and you would like to ask questions and inquire what's going on and what's happening. So that then with your calmness and your composure, taking in this information, you can maintain the calmness, you can maintain the mindfulness, maintain the concentration, and now you can use your wisdom in order to make wise decisions to help your child, for example. So in both of these situations, whether it's a hospital situation or a child misbehaving at school or something like that, if we allow the mind to be shaken up by this difficult situation, then the mind is uncalm, and we're not going to be able to access the wisdom. We're going to have certain intentions, speech, and actions that most likely are going to lead to further unwholesome results. So it's by practicing equanimity and arising this in the mind to keep calm and maintain composure and evenness of temper that we can then make wise decisions in all situations. So where you feel any kind of painful feeling starting to arise when you are experiencing a difficult situation, you'd like to cut that off and let that go in order to maintain your composure, maintain your calmness. And this is gonna help you with restlessness, worry, anxiety, an overactive mind. It helps with arrogance. It also helps with ego as part of maintaining one's calmness and composure. This other aspect of equanimity is treating everyone impartially. If you treat everybody fairly and you treat everybody similarly, then the mind can maintain its composure. So for example, if you were interacting with some of your friends or some of your co-workers that you interact with on a daily basis your mind is going to interact with intention speech and actions in a certain way because you're used to interacting with them it's a normal thing that you do on a daily basis but let's just say you meet the most famous celebrity that you've ever thought of and somebody who you really look up to as a celebrity or maybe a political figure someone who has a lot of power or maybe Uh, someone who's in private business who happens to be extremely wealthy or something like this, and you feel that different people are at different levels in society, and you look up to some people and you look down to other people. Well, when you're around people who you look down to, the mind's going to be arrogant and prideful, and there's going to be this ego. In those situations where you look up to people, The mind's gonna be uncalm, it's gonna be shaken up. And once again, it's not gonna be able to access wisdom and have good wholesome outcomes in terms of making wise decisions. So if you treat everyone equally, treat them impartially, look at everyone as being equal, then you can have a solid practice of things like right intention, right speech, and right actions, where you speak to your friends in exactly the same way that you would speak to the president of your country or the prime minister of your country or any of these other people, like maybe someone who's like a celebrity or someone who you really look up to. If you think of people at being different levels in society and you look up and you look down to people, then you're going to have different ways of treating different people. And the mind has to go through all this hard work every single conversation, every single interaction that you're in, you have to go through this hard work and figure out who are you speaking to right now? And you have to completely revert your intention, speech and actions to one of your friends versus the prime minister or the president of your country or one of your friends and perhaps a celebrity that you look up to and that you admire. But if you're looking to create this permanent practice where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy permanently. And you don't have to do all this sorting out in the mind, all this overloading and overthinking and overactivity in the mind, where you switch from being one type of person with one group of people and a different type of person with another group of people. Rather than having to go through all of that, you can just be exactly the same way with all people around you, whether it's a client, whether it's a boss, whether it's a coworker, or whether it's one of your family members. You can just practice right intention, right speech, right action, and all the others with everybody in all situations. So the root word here of equanimity is equal, right? You would like to be treating people equally. This is that impartiality. So at the same time that we look at equanimity as this mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, always remember this other component to it, that it's treating everyone impartially and equally and fairly. And as I mentioned, that part of treating people Impartially, this will help you to eradicate the overactive mind or anxiety or worry when you're around people who you look up to. It will also help you to eradicate arrogance or the ego if there's people you look down on. Instead, just view everybody as equal. And once again, the way that you cultivate this is through your daily life, through your daily practice. So, that when you see restlessness, worry, anxiety, overactivity, or arrogance or ego coming into the mind based on the mind not being calm and composed, or based on not looking at everyone equally and impartially, then you arise this equanimity through practicing right effort, where you eliminate the restlessness, worry, anxiety, overactivity, arrogance, and ego through applying right effort to eliminate those unwholesome qualities and then arise the wholesome quality of equanimity. What questions do you guys have on these two? Well,
2: I'm wondering about the relation between equanimity and restlessness. Uh, As I understand restlessness is that the mind is full of thoughts. So uh, I'm trying to figure out the problem, how to deal with it. How can equanimity in such cases help?
1: Yeah. So restlessness shows up as part of what the Buddha describes as the five hindrances. So one of the hindrances to enlightenment is an overactive restless mind, which will also show up through your bodily actions as well. It'll show up in your speech if the speech is really rapid. And it's also part of the 10 fetters, eliminating restlessness as part of the 10 fetters. So equanimity is the antidote to that. So if you can work on training the mind to be calm, composed and have this evenness of temper, then you can calm the mind down almost on cue. You can almost snap the fingers. And then when the mind gets used to residing in equanimity, more and more and more, it will, won't will bounce out into that overactivity and that restlessness. So if you notice that the mind is overactive, just even in daily life, maybe just driving down the road, you have this overactive mind. Of course, breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing singleness of mind through right concentration, which is part of the Eightfold Path, all those other things that I've taught in this entire group learning program are going to help to eradicate restlessness. But also, you need to always be thinking about equanimity and training the mind to always reside calm and relaxed, but yet attentive and alert. So we can have this calmness in this relaxed mind, but then it's attentive and it's alert as well. It's not complacent. So by bringing equanimity into the mind, creating calmness in the mind, then not only will the mind be calm and not be overactive with all those restless thoughts, but you'll also see that your speech will probably slow down. You'll probably see that your bodily movements will slow down. You won't have these harsh, aggressive movements. And whenever something difficult is happening where you just got a phone call or somebody walked in and shared some news or you opened an email or you looked at a chat message and some difficult situation has occurred, The unrelated mind is going to have a tendency to be shaken up during those situations. Because of its craving, desire, attachment, it's going to get shaken up potentially. But as soon as you see any difficult situation, right away there should almost be like a trigger in the mind. Mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper. Bring that into the mind and arise that before you start making any decisions to resolve the situation. And where you can if you can postpone any decisions sometimes we feel this urgency because of craving desire attachment we feel this urgency this impending doom that we have to hurry up and make a bunch of decisions right now in order to kind of right the ship and bring the ship back to where we feel content and peaceful because we are craving this permanent way of being but if there are certain things that come to your awareness In certain difficult situations that don't require an immediate decision there's no need to make an immediate decision right now so this is one of the ways to cultivate equanimity is just to put that on pause think through what it is that you've just learned about and then an hour or a day or a few days or a week from now when you're able to make decisions make decisions on that particular situation Even if somebody is pushing you and pushing you and pushing you to hurry up and make a bunch of decisions, you know if you make hurried decisions that aren't steeped in wisdom, they're not going to have wholesome outcomes. So rather than allow other people to push you to hurry up and make a decision that you know would be better to put on pause and wait until later so that you can arise this equanimity and maybe some of these other wholesome teachings that the Buddha taught, you should do that. And that's going to then train the mind to more and more not reside in this restlessness, to not have this overactivity, this dwelling in the overactivity, this anxiety and this worry. The more and more that you take active steps to apply right effort, to put that overactivity, that restlessness, that anxiety on pause and say, hold on a second, let me just take some time to think about this the mind's going to get more and more used to doing this and it won't revert back to that restlessness. So you've got to actively train the mind to do this. So where you see the mind being overactive, that's where you've got to apply the right effort to eliminate it and arise the equanimity and then it'll stay there and reside there more long term. And eventually as the mind gets close to enlightenment, the mind will always have equanimity. It will never have restlessness. But the only way that you can get to that is to have mindfulness, to be aware when the restlessness comes in, and then use right effort to cut that off and let it go and arise the equanimity.
2: Nick has his hand to Yes, teacher. In today's world, there's so many people that, uh, that have a restless mind or, or, or they're anxious
0: Do you you think uh, someone that's lacking equanimity, that uh, has a restless mind, or anxious, they have trouble sleeping, do you think it would be a good idea for them to consider taking out substances like coffee or soda out of their diet? Like just caffeine, is that a hindrance towards equanimity?
1: Absolutely. That's why it's part of the five precepts on the fifth precept of Eliminating substances that cause heedlessness. So, if we're ingesting substances, you know, some of the harsh ones, of course, but even some of the other ones that are legal, like caffeine, it's going to create restlessness in the mind. It's going to create anxiety. It's going to speed up and create an overactive mind. So, when you purge the caffeine out of your intake, then this will help to bring the mind to a more natural state where it can arise equanimity. As long as we're putting a substance like caffeine into the body, you're basically working against what you're trying to accomplish in terms of this path. You're trying to slow the mind down. You're trying to get to this mental state of equanimity and other wholesome mental states that are in the middle. And as long as there's that substance of caffeine in there, it's going to an overactive mind. And even one glass of some of that can really produce an overactive mind. And you'll notice this, the more and more that you purify the mind, the more that someone trains their mind, you will observe the effects of caffeine more readily, where it does, like you said, hinder sleep, it hinders equanimity. And if you decide to eliminate caffeine from your intake you can observe it's just like a drug that you'll end up probably having headaches you'll have shakes you'll have other experiences where you'll observe that the mind is in the body is detoxing from this drug of caffeine so even though certain things are legal in our environment like alcohol and other things like caffeine and others are legal it's important for us to have the wisdom to know how to make wise decisions that by ingesting any kind of substances like this it's only going to make it more difficult to purify the mind and someone who's continuing to purify their mind and drink caffeine they're going to notice the effects on the mind more and more because as the mind becomes more and more pure it becomes more sensitive to things like caffeine follow up to that teacher Uh, there's so many people especially in america that think uh, caffeine in the morning is a necessity to get going
0: and to wake up. Um, how would you recommend someone uh, re- get, gets rid of it a- out of their diet? Or there's people that um, just think, well,
1: it's fine if I don't drink it past four o'clock, you know, then I can go to sleep and possibly. What would you just say to some, someone like that, sir? Yeah, so the mind becomes dependent on that, that in order to get up in the morning, and get your day going, the mind is dependent on this substance, just like someone might be dependent on alcohol or cocaine or heroin. Caffeine is a lesser version of those things, but it's still the same craving, desire, attachment. It's the same habit. It's the same mindset of being dependent on some substance in order for us to conduct our life. And as we know, those substances are not permanent. And that's why the mind can't get to this permanent peaceful calm serene content mind with joy as long as it's clinging or holding on to caffeine so even though someone might feel that it oh it's okay it's just caffeine i'm just going to drink a couple glasses in the morning there's still a dependency there there's still a craving there and that is still clinging and there's not a way to make that permanent and the way to purge this out of your life is to do it gradually oftentimes people do it abruptly the mind doesn't really like that. So if you're, say, a four cup of coffee in the morning drinker, you might do three cups for a week or two, and then go to two cups for a week or two, and then do one cup for a week or two, and then maybe go to half coffee with caffeine and half decaf, and then maybe move to kind of a a lighter tea, you know, a tea with just a little bit of caffeine, and then move to an herbal tea. If you like warm drinks in the morning, then move to uh, kind of a tea or something that just is warm like turmeric tea or jasmine tea that doesn't have any caffeine in it. So what the mind really wants and what the body wants is it wants this caffeine because most people who drink caffeine or drink some substance, the caffeine doesn't have any benefit to the physical body itself. It's always put in with some other substance, right? Right the sodas or the coffee, and then we don't even like the taste of coffee for most people. We put a bunch of milk or sugar in it. So we like the sweetness and the milk and sugar, but we like the effects of the caffeine. So if you gradually move the mind away from the caffeine, then the mind can come into its natural state of being. It can come into its natural brightness in the middle. But as long as the mind is being taken away to one side or the other with a substance, you can never clearly observe the pure mind. I remember at times when I used to drink a lot of coffee, sometimes my mind would be so overactive, I would just be rattling off at the mouth. And sometimes I would say things that, I was like, where did that come from? Like, why did I say that? And it was like maybe a horrible thing to say or was the inappropriate time to say it or something like this. And it was just that the mind was moving so fast and so rapidly because of the caffeine that I ended up saying something or doing something that I wouldn't otherwise have done. And then, of course, there was challenges with sleeping and other things as well. So while the mind wants to hold on to the caffeine and thinks that it needs that, when you purge the caffeine and you get rid of it and you're away from it for three, four, five, six months and you see the benefits of having done that, You'll look back and you'll say, oh my goodness, thank goodness I got rid of that caffeine. While you're in the habit, while you're in that craving, desire, attachment, the mind's going to try to justify every single reason it can come up with of why you still need to hold on to this because it doesn't want to let go. That's the last thing that the mind wants to do. It wants to hold on to its craving, desire, attachments. But as you're able to make wise decisions to gradually get away from it and you look back on it and you see how much more clarity the mind has, you see how much easier you sleep, you see how much more tempered your moods are, you don't have these highs and lows because of the caffeine, then you'll look back and you'll be like, my goodness, thank goodness that I made that decision. But while you're actually in it, it's really hard for the mind to have that clarity and realize, let me let this go. So my suggestion would be to definitely gradually move away from any kind of substances like that, and you'll thank yourself a million times once you've actually done it. Thank you, Venerable Sir. You're welcome.
2: Well, do you agree that the more responsibilities one has, the more
1: restless and overactive the mind will be? It all depends on how the person progresses in their life. You can have a million and one responsibilities but you can handle those one at a time in a very deliberate way or you could have 10 things and just go about it haphazardly and with an overactive mind and run and run and run and run so the quantity of responsibilities you have isn't the determining factor of whether your mind is overactive or not it's about how you've trained the mind to progress in daily life and take just one thing at a time and progress slowly but surely through your day without allowing the mind to run and run and run. Instead of measuring and judging your own worth or your own productivity about the quantity of tasks and the quantity of responsibilities that you have in a given day, instead, look at the quality and look at handling each individual task with good quality. Because you could plow through a hundred different things in one day, but then tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, you're cleaning up all the problems that you created because you just plowed through those hundred things. Or perhaps you you focus on five or 10 or 15 or whatever it is that you do in a given day, you just focus on one at a time, do it with very good quality, ensuring that you make really good, wise decisions in each individual task. And then when you're done with it, you're done with it. There's no need to go back and clean it up. So while we think that getting a huge quantity of tasks done in a given day is productivity, you don't think about all the cleaning up that you have to do for many days to come because you just plowed through a bunch of stuff. Instead, you just take one thing at a time, handling it really well, and then you move on to the next thing. You don't have anything to clean up, and you're actually more productive in that situation because each individual thing that you're involved in, you're making wise decisions. So therefore, it's producing wholesome results, whereas if you plow through 100 things, and let's just say 80 of them you got done in a really good way, but there's still 20 of them that you maybe made unwise decisions on That means it's going to produce unwholesome results. And that means you're going to have to clean up all that stuff later. So you should get used to understanding that quantity is not an indication of anything whatsoever. Oftentimes we're led to believe that it's the quantity of things that we get done in a given day that is the determination of whether we're productive or not. But instead you should look at quality. Even if you just do one thing, I remember when my son was an infant and my wife was going back to work and I uh, would stay home, you know, a couple days a week to take care of him. And the one thing that I was doing was just taking care of him. And that was it. And it was a struggle at certain times. But eventually I got the mind to the point realizing that, okay, this is probably the best thing that I could do is just take care of him in a very good quality way and just do this one thing today and just be content with that. And of course, within that one thing, there's a gazillion things and take care of a child. But there's just that one thing. And what the mind was used to during that period of time was being a business person and doing a whole lot of things and being involved in different business conversations and talking with employees and customers and writing emails and all these things. And that's where the mind maybe wants to be on that given day. But the mind needs to realize that where it needs to be is just right here taking care of my son in that particular situation and i can do those other things later but if the mind is longing for doing those other things and trying to take care of the kid at the same time it's not going to create wholesome results and wholesome benefits so we need to realize what do we need to do in any given situation not what does the mind want to do but what do we need to do? And if we fulfill our needs, that's where we're ensuring that we can just handle one thing at a time and just fulfill our needs. Oftentimes we're in a race, we're rushing. Not now I don't do that, but in the past, I remember rushing from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And eventually I got to the point, I was like, why am I rushing around everywhere? Where am I in a hurry to go? Am I in a hurry to get to death? Like, what what am I doing? You know, because even when I would hurry up and get through a whole bunch of tasks, okay, I just got done all those tasks. Now what? You know, the mind's just looking for what are the next set of tasks? What are we always in a hurry for? So if we slow down and just kind of enjoy the journey and enjoy each individual thing, ensuring that we're making wise decisions, we don't have a mess to clean up afterwards, then we realize that we're really not going anywhere the only place that we're all going is we're going to death that's where we're all headed towards we're all headed towards death so why be in a hurry to get there uh, let's just take our time let's just make wise decisions let's treat everybody with this loving kindness compassion let's have sympathetic joy equanimity and just enjoy the journey along the way
2: well a uh, visualizing the situations in which the mind most likely loses its equanimity and trying to train the mind to be at ease in such situations. Do you agree that this would be a good way that one can involve or include uh, in meditation?
1: Meditation is an important component to the path. And, you know, as you've heard me say, is you, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation but you also wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment with only meditation either so with something like equanimity in these difficult situations if you've been listening to this talk and maybe afterwards or even now you're starting to think about think about the difficult situations that you encounter on a day-to-day basis or you have encountered even maybe just one or two times in your life And think about how your mind got really shaken up during that time frame and how it was really hard for you to make decisions. And maybe you made decisions that were not so wise, that led to further harm or further difficulties. Well, if you know that those situations are occurring occasionally or on certain frequency, then now in forever, whenever you experience any difficult situation, you work to arise this equanimity and maintain your composure. And eventually what you do as you develop this path more and more is you develop the mind to the point where no situation is difficult at all, where now there might be certain situations that are really difficult for you. The reason why they're difficult is because they're still craving anger and ignorance in the mind. But when you transform that and you practice generosity, loving kindness and wisdom, now situations that once were really difficult actually become quite easy and quite straightforward because you have the wisdom on board that you need in order to fulfill this situation and meet this responsibility. And equanimity is a big part of that. As soon as you allow the mind to be shaken up in any situation it's only going to lead to unwholesome results so in situations that you now know are difficult for you and you're working on figuring out how to make them less difficult for you eventually when you fully arise the enlightened mind and you reside in the enlightened mind there won't be any difficult situations but the only reason why is because in the situations that you experience that are difficult now then you arise equanimity in these other healthy mental states and all the other aspects of this path. And that helps you to now function in a way that is like an enlightened being where there is no such thing as a difficult situation, but you have to kind of climb the mountain to get up to the top of the mountain, enjoy the view and enjoy the fresh air in order to realize like, oh, this mountain wasn't so tall after all. I always thought this was such a difficult thing, but it really it really isn't difficult. It's just that I was lacking the wisdom of how to handle it. So part of the wisdom of how to handle these difficult situations is to have equanimity. As long as you have equanimity and you maintain your calmness and composure, you can access that mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And with enough time and with enough experiences, you'll find that there is no such thing as a difficult situation. There's just the mind perceiving it as a difficult situation. And as soon as you let go of that perception that this is a difficult situation and what you realize is it's just a situation and all i need to do is figure out through asking questions what's happening in this situation and now once i understand what's happening let me now bring in the wisdom in order to make wise decisions to resolve the situation but there are going to be situations that feel difficult but just know that it's not truly a difficult situation. It's just the mind's craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality that's perceiving it as being difficult. So the more you develop the mind, particularly with wisdom, there won't be any difficult situations. They'll just be situations.
2: Our message has a question. Okay. She writes, Hello, Dr. David. Please discuss how can we discover the sources of anxiety? If we aren't sure what is triggering it i mean that i feel anxious without intuition seeming to cause it
1: okay so anytime the mind is discontent and anxiety is one of those it's always going to be craving desire attachment that's the root cause of all discontentedness including anxiety so if you're not able to see what the craving desire attachments are like the way we talked in the last two weeks About identifying your cravings then it would be wise for you to schedule an appointment so that we can talk specifically about your personal situations and start to uncover what are the cravings that are producing this anxiety because you won't be able to eliminate the anxiety until you eliminate the craving desire attachments that are causing it so it's always 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 craving desire attachment that's the root cause but the question becomes, well, which craving-desire attachments? Which ones? And once you uncover those by identifying them, then you can actively work to resolve them. Once you eliminate those craving-desire attachments, then the anxiety won't arise anymore. But of course, it takes time to do that. You're not going to be able to just click your fingers, eliminate the craving-desire attachments, and resolve the anxiety. So the first step, since you're not able to see it yourself, I feel would be to schedule an appointment so we can talk about it and then i'll help you uncover those and then gradually you can work at resolving those craving, desire attachments and you'll see your anxiety will diminish and eventually become non-existent where it'll be eliminated
2: on facebook barikshit writes what about the rule of fasting in
1: equanimity fasting isn't something that is required in order to attain enlightenment The Buddha taught his ordained practitioners to eat just one time a day, but this was for specific reasons. He had very specific reasons of why he did this and why people practice that. An ordained lifestyle is very different than a householder lifestyle. We're involved in all kinds of activities. Like today, we took two trips to my wife's old office and she's moving out. She closed down her business two years ago with COVID, but we just haven't moved anything out yet. You know, there's all kinds of moving and lifting, and if you have children, there's all kinds of activities, there's work. Getting by on one meal a day for a household practitioner is nearly impossible. There are certain days where you could do that, but it's not required. The thing that the Buddha really taught in terms of food is moderation in eating that we shouldn't gorge ourselves with these big, huge meals and put this huge burden on the body to now digest all of that food at one time. Because there's certain craving, desire, attachment involved where the mind is longing to engross itself with all this central pleasure of food. So limiting your food or fasting, completely eliminating food isn't required. But what is required is to have moderation of eating so that you're not gorging and making the body overwork. And you're also tempering your central desire, your craving, desire, attachment. And you're also you know, paying close attention to how the mind relates to food, that it's not pursuing through central desire, specific foods because of central desire. And then also that you train the mind to be comfortable that it's not going to be permanently comfortable, that the body itself can't be permanently comfortable. So that when we experience hunger pain, for example, realize that that's part of impermanence and that this physical body isn't me. So when I experience hunger, I don't think that I am hungry because there's no I here. I can't be hungry. This physical body needs food But I am not hungry. It's just that this physical body needs food. Because if I had the choice, I wouldn't eat at all because it just takes so much time and effort to actually eat. I would just rather not even eat. But because this body needs food in order to maintain itself and maintain its life, I need to feed it food in order to ensure that it's nourished and has what it needs. So whenever I experience hunger or the body sends the signal to the mind that it's hungry and that it needs food, I just think, okay, the body needs food. I should probably start looking out for that. And there are certain situations where you might go 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours or longer of feeling that hunger. And during that time, you should maintain your contentedness, maintain the joy, maintain the peacefulness. Oftentimes what we do is we use the hunger as an excuse to be grumpy and irritable. And then our intention, speech, and actions emanate with these feelings of grumpiness and irritability. And now we start causing harm in the world through our intention, speech, and actions. And we start interacting with people in hostile ways. So if we transform the mind and realize that we need to eat in moderation, and that the body is going to sometimes be hungry because it can't permanently be full, there's going to be situations where it is hungry, then just recognize it as the body is hungry, but I am not hungry. This hunger pain that is being felt in the body is not me, it's not I, it doesn't belong to me. It's just the nature of being in this physical body that I need to feed it. And when the body is feeling that pain, the mind doesn't have to be grumpy or irritable as a result and we don't have to have this intention speech and actions that are harsh and aggressive we can maintain our peaceful calm serene and consent mind with joy even when the body is experiencing pain so when you think about these two things as being separate as the physical body being one thing and the mind being something else we don't need to allow the body and any pain that we're experiencing in the body to affect the mind. We can just observe and recognize that the body is in pain. And now let's practice equanimity, keeping the mind calm and composed and with the evenness of temper. And now let's make wise decisions with the mind in order to find food, to eliminate this physical pain that's occurring in the body. But if we allow that physical pain in the body to now arise painful feelings in the mind now we've got physical pain and we've got mental pain as well and now that's where we start doing unwholesome things through our intention speech and actions so by not associating these physical pains as being i or mine or i am hungry and instead just think of it as the body's hungry Let me start making some wise decisions to get some food so I can remedy that. Then you don't have to experience the mental pain. You can just keep it as a physical pain until you make wise decisions to remedy it with food. But I don't suggest anybody necessarily do fasting or eat once a day unless your lifestyle is such that that's something that you can do comfortably because our calorie requirements in the household life are much more than what an ordained practitioner is going to need. And even in the ordained life, a lot of the practitioners now are eating twice a day because they're observing that their body needs more energy than what perhaps was needed during the lifetime of the Buddha. There's some people who say that certain foods during the lifetime of the Buddha had a higher calorie content than what they do now. So the soil, the water, the air perhaps was a different quality during the Buddha's lifetime, 2,500 years ago, so maybe a broccoli or a cauliflower or a carrot had a much higher caloric intake. So one meal a day might have been what was possible during that time, and with a more subdued lifestyle of just essentially teaching and meditating. That's what ordained practitioners do. But now, even ordained practitioners today will oftentimes eat twice a day and people sometimes attribute this to the food maybe not having as much energy in it and also there's more demands with some of the ordained practitioners nowadays you'll see them sweeping or working I've, in america there's ordained practitioners who cut grass and uh, do yard work at the temples because there's not enough household practitioners to take care of that kind of stuff like here in Thailand. So the amount of food that we eat isn't a dependent aspect of whether we attain enlightenment or not. We need to always be sure that we're ingesting an amount of food that's going to maintain the health of the body, but that we're not over-ingesting, right? So that moderation, that middle. So not lacking food and kind of malnourishing the body, but also not engrossing ourselves and indulging ourselves in food either, Finding that middle way where there's moderation. That's what we all need to do. And that middle is going to be different for different people. There's times where I'm not as active and I might eat one or two meals a day. And then there's other times where I'm much more active with my son and doing other things here at the house that I need to eat three meals a day, perhaps. So you have to regulate that and realize that it's going to all be based on your activity and your activity isn't permanent. Your activity is going up and down all the times, so just be sure you're not indulging and overeating, but be sure you're not malnourished either, and just find that middle way, and it's gonna fluctuate as you go throughout your life.
2: Would you say that allowing the mind to arise a restlessness, anxiety, uh, or being overactive will not solve the problem, but it will always make it worse?
1: Anytime you understand that the mind is experiencing any of these unwholesome qualities, and all throughout this program, all throughout these books, all throughout the Buddhist teachings, all throughout my interactions, I'm helping students to see the unwholesome qualities and also helping you to see the wholesome qualities. So wherever the unwholesome qualities are in the mind... The mind is polluted and it's going to experience struggles and difficulties because the intention, speech, and actions are to come through those polluted aspects of the mind. And you're going to find that your intention, speech, and actions are going to be tainted with the pollution of mind. So anytime you observe any unwholesome qualities in the mind, you should always eliminate that. Through cutting it off and letting it go and arise the wholesome mental states. So, part of what you're doing is part of this path is understanding all these tools and all these antidotes that the Buddha gave. It's like, okay, you're three months from now sitting in a business meeting and somebody gets called up to be employee of the month. And you start seeing this jealousy arise in the mind. Oh, I know the answer to that sympathetic joy. Let me cut off that jealousy no let me let me have some joy for this person's success right it doesn't mean you're a bad person that the jealousy is there it doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong it just means that if you allow your intention speech and actions and that jealousy to reside there your intention speech and actions are going to be polluted with this jealousy so what you start learning more and more and you get intimately familiar with is what are the unwholesome qualities and what are the wholesome qualities, and then you pull out the tool that you need at any given time to remedy the situation, and then the more that you do that on a consistent, ongoing basis, your mind will never experience jealousy ever again because you've got sympathetic joy permeating in the mind. Your mind will never experience restlessness, worry, anxiety, or overactivity when you train the mind to let go of those things and cut them off and arise this equanimity. The mind will just always reside in equanimity all the time. So while you need to produce a certain amount of effort and energy in order to move the mind away from these polluted feelings and polluted unwholesome mental states, as you do more and more, the mind just effortlessly resides in these four healthy mental states it's no longer any effort because it's permeating in the mind so much that the mind is just always residing in these four healthy mental states but in order to get there you have to do the work to bring the mind to that and part of that work is identifying the unwholesome qualities of mind as they arise and then cut them off let them go and arise the wholesome on youtube that is
2: writes when you say the mind wants, it sounds to me like it is a separate entity with it, with its own brain. Can you help me understand?
1: Yeah, so the mind and the brain are two different things. They're not the same thing. They're actually completely separate. The brain is the organ that controls the functioning of the human body. The brain is tangible. We can point. We know where the brain is. We can touch it. Uh, we can look at it. You can actually know exactly where the physical brain is. It's a physical thing. It's an organ. It controls the physical body. But the mind is intangible. It's non-physical. You can't point to where the mind is. Some people point to the head. Some people point to the heart. Some people say that the mind is outside the body. It's this intangible, non-physical thing. And the mind is separate from the brain. And this is what you're working to train as part of this path, as what the Buddha taught is all about training the mind or the consciousness. So that's what you're working on is training this non-physical, non-tangible thing that we call the mind, not the brain. You're not training the brain. There's a some type of connection between the mind and brain, but they are two completely separate things. By training the mind, It has an effect on the brain and if you did certain things to the brain it does have an effect on the mind but these two things are completely separate it's just like the connection between the hand and the brain for example the hand is not the brain it's a separate thing from the brain but if you cut your finger you would feel that ultimately in the mind the mind would feel that if you allowed it to go to the mind so th- while the hand is not the brain, there's some connection between the hand and the brain. We know that through the nervous system, right? So there's the same thing going on with the mind and the brain. They're two separate things, but there is a connection between the two of them. But always understand that you're training the mind. You're not training the brain.
2: Thanks, teacher. No more question.
1: All right. So the last thing that I shared as part of this chapter 14 and that I'll share as part of today's class is this other aspect of practice called generosity. We've talked about this at different times in this program. It's not part of the Brahma Viharas. It's not part of cultivating healthy mental state necessarily in terms of if you think of the healthy mental states as just the Brahma Viharas. But because I titled this chapter cultivating healthy mental states, it's important that we put this other healthy mental state or this practice of generosity, because it's one that oftentimes we find very difficult and very challenging in our life. While it's not part of the Brahma Viharas, we do know that it has an important, important aspect to our practice. And without generosity, we wouldn't be able to make our way to enlightenment. So what generosity is, is this practice of giving and sharing or helping others on an ongoing, consistent basis where just throughout our life in a comprehensive way, we're practicing giving and sharing. It's this action that we would like to develop where we have more care and we're compassionate. So this really helps to arise loving kindness and compassion in the mind when we're practicing generosity. As I mentioned, loving kindness and compassion are standalone mental states that we need to cultivate and practice. And there's ways to practice that, but generosity oftentimes puts this into motion and allows us to cultivate loving kindness and compassion even more so when we combine it with something like generosity. By us putting out generosity, it actually helps us to cultivate this mind where we let go of craving, desire, attachment. It's craving, desire, attachment, or clinging and holding on to things that is causing the discontentedness in the mind. So as long as we still selfishly hold on to our time, effort, energy, and resources, then we're holding on so tightly to these things that we're also holding on to other things in our life too. So by practicing generosity, it trains the mind to let go of our time, effort, energy, and resources and find that middle way to be able to give and share with others. And it allows us to eliminate selfishness. It allows us to eliminate selfish desires. And most importantly, it helps us to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, where the mind's holding on because this is what's causing all the discontentedness in our life. So by training the mind to practice generosity on a consistent, ongoing basis with all people around us and finding that middle way of what's right for us, then we train the mind to let go. And then when you're practicing generosity, it's more likely to let go of that argument or that anger or that hostility because you're training the mind through generosity to let go of your time, effort, energy, and resources that not only in breathing mindfulness meditation are you training the mind to let go, but you're also training the mind to let go in your daily life as well. And this is why the Buddha taught about practicing generosity with your own hand. The 13th volume of this book series that I wrote is all about generosity. And one of the things you'll see when the Buddha talks and teaches about generosity, talks about making offerings with your own hand. This is really revolutionary where you train the mind to give and share from your own hand, and you're able to cultivate this giving and sharing and generosity, but it also helps you to put into place loving kindness, and compassion as well. So where you observe selfishness or selfish desires where the mind wants to hold on to things, where you observe that with mindfulness, then once again, apply right effort to eliminate that unwholesome quality of selfishness and share. And it can be something as simple as I've mentioned Of sharing a bag of chips you open up a bag of chips there's people around you and you share with them and even if it comes back and there's only one chip left in the bag okay eat that one chip and then if you need to go buy another bag of chips go buy another bag of chips but don't hold on same thing when you're walking down the street share a smile right that's your time your effort and your energy right just share a smile with people or something that doesn't cost you any money at all if you're into donating blood for example you can go donate blood and this doesn't cost you anything at all it's just your time effort energy but also the resource of this physical body not only does that help you to practice generosity but it also helps you to practice non-self and get to the point where you realize non-self that this body doesn't belong to you that i'm going to give up this substance this liquid this blood for the benefit of others. And in order to practice pure generosity, there needs to be no expectation of anything in return, that you don't expect anything in return. And this is one of the reasons why donating blood, I think is a really wonderful way to practice generosity because you don't even get to meet the people who you've actually helped save your, their life. And with one pint of blood, you end up helping multiple people because they separate that blood sometimes and to many different substances to help many different people. So this is something that you can be doing on a regular ongoing basis, not just sharing your time, effort, and energy with your friends and family and people around you or even people that you don't know, but you can make a regular habit of doing things like donating blood or donating other things like this. This can be really helpful and revolutionary to the mind that while you're there giving blood that you just think of this body as not belonging to you and you're willing to give and share with others. Your resources, your time, your effort, and energy. The Buddha shares some words around this in his teachings. He shares lots of different words around giving and sharing, but I think these particular words from him are really impactful and really help you to see the importance of generosity. He says, Monks, if beings knew as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of selfishness obsess them and take root in their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there were someone to share it with. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given and the stain of selfishness obsesses them and takes root in their minds. What the Buddha is talking about in terms of beings do not know as he knows the results of giving and sharing is that it's the average person might have been taught as a child to give and share and that's what we're taught to do as children. But as we get older and we start accumulating assets, we start accumulating wealth, we start accumulating certain things, we accumulate, right? We accumulate, we hold on. But what we really need to get to in order to to train the mind to let go is this giving and sharing. And that's what the Buddha is saying when he says, beings do not know as I know the results of giving and sharing. He understands what enlightenment is. He understands the peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy, and that generosity is one of the main things that helps the mind get to enlightenment, and because he knows the benefits of what enlightenment feels like, what the experience of the enlightened mind is, that's what he's saying, that he knows the results of giving and sharing, but other beings don't, and that's why they continue to allow selfishness to obsess the mind so as you gradually decide to practice more generosity in whichever way you choose to do that you'll see that the mind will start to let go and you notice that the mind will be trained to eliminate this craving desire attachment moving closer to this enlightened mental state so that you will know what this enlightened mental state is like and you can let go of this stain of selfishness so even if it's your last bite the Buddha saying, if there's someone to share it with, share it. So if you've ever eaten a bowl of ice cream or you've ever eaten anything and you know how good that last bite feels, that's that craving, desire, attachment. In certain situations where you feel that craving, you might be interested to just share with somebody else and allow the mind to let that go and not hold it so tightly or with certain uh, resources that you might have. Look to share it. And this is going to be an important, healthy mental state for you to cultivate that's not part of the Brahma-viharas, but it surely is a major component of the path to enlightenment. And that's why there's a whole book dedicated to generosity. And the Buddha talks about generosity in multiple places. He even says that him becoming a Buddha and actually being able to attain enlightenment on his own without the help of any teachers is as a result of his generosity in this life and in all of his previous lives as well. He talks about the enormous amount of generosity that he had in all of his previous lives as well as in this life itself because think about being a member of a royal family and having all the riches and everything you could ever imagine and stepping down from that at the age of 29 and then deciding at the age of 35 to devote the rest of his life to just helping people. That's all he did, right? He didn't look to acquire wealth or money or assets. He just helped people for 45 years, just living with whatever food and donations that were given to him, whatever shelter was offered to him. He just lived this very basic existence because he was more interested in helping people. And he did that for 45 years. So the vast majority of his last life was all helping people. And that's a Buddha, even an actual Buddha, once someone has attained enlightenment, they will know that it's generosity that helped them to get there. And even once the mind is fully enlightened as a Buddha, they're still going to be practicing generosity because they know that's what led to the liberation of their mind. And they're going to continue to practice generosity, even as an enlightened being. So this is something that oftentimes comes hard for us when we get used to accumulating certain things. Also, if you've been taught that wealth and prosperity is what leads to happiness, if that's what the conditioning of the mind is, you might find yourself holding on to things very tightly. So you will need to transform that if you're interested in getting to enlightenment, where you're willing to give and share and help others through your time, effort, energy, and resources. And this will really energize and support and help to move into place the loving kindness and compassion as well so i'll open things up for any questions you guys have for the rest of today's class on this particular content or anything else that you guys would like to ask questions about
2: well talking about generosity is there any priority when practicing generosity i mean uh, family friends uh, teacher
1: yeah the buddha gives guidance in terms of how we should look at practicing sharing wealth. And he talks about wealth going to good use. And he talks about taking care of yourself, making sure that you're sustained. And think about food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care, right? You would need to make sure that your own being is taken care of. Because if you're lacking any of those five things, food, water, clothing, shelter, or medical care, if you're lacking those, then you can't sustain your livelihood. You can't sustain this life. So it doesn't make sense for you to be giving away everything if you don't even have any food for yourself. But given that you have food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care, then he says the next group of people you should look at is your life partner and your children in your workers and people around you like your employees and people that are helping you to sustain your life. So you look at those people next. Then he talks about your relatives and people that are that are close to you making sure that everybody's well taken care of and then ultimately after he goes through this whole list he puts himself as last and he says okay you know once all these things are satisfied then if you would like to make offerings to people who are sharing these teachings then that would be the appropriate time so you've got to find that middle way where you're able to sustain your own life and make sure the people around you are whole but then also share time, effort, energy, and resources with people who are sharing these teachings into the world. Because without sharing with people that are sharing these teachings in the world, then these teachings don't make their way and penetrate into the world for all of us to be able to eliminate our discontentedness and the suffering that we experience as a result. And as part of that generosity, you probably would look at charities and helping with your time, effort, energy, and resources there as well. Or if you're just walking down the street, like the example I talked about with Nick and I, and there's people that you can help, you know, find ways of helping, but you've got to find that middle way where you're not completely exhausting all of your resources and you don't have what you need for you and your family, but also you can't be holding on so tightly that you're selfish either. You've got to find that middle way, and that's important for all aspects of the Buddhist teachings, including generosity.
2: Is there any harm if one decides to not practice generosity for beggars and streets? Because sometimes this will lead, in, will lead to increased numbers of beggars, but instead maybe share the teachings with others, practice generosity to those who are close to us.
1: Yes. What you choose to give and share is your choice. All of this is all free will. Whether you even choose to practice generosity is your own choice. And how you choose to practice generosity, you might decide that people on the street in certain countries, depending on how it works, you might choose that uh, maybe people are scamming or it's hard to determine who really truly is in need. Or as you said, by maybe practicing generosity with these people, it creates more of a dependency on you in order to fulfill their needs and they don't take the action that they need in order to improve their life. So maybe you support situations where people are in training or people are actively working to improve their life or like you said, maybe supporting the teachings by providing these people with resources to learn the teachings and stuff. That's where it comes down to your own independent decisions. For me, I tend to support all of you, right? I support all of everybody that is interested to learn and practice these teachings. I dedicate time, effort, energy, and resources to sharing these teachings in as many ways as possible. I also support orphanages and help orphanages where I can, taking them food and things like that. I also help occasionally when I'm out and about if there's people on the streets that need help every once in a while if i see somebody not everybody but every once in a while here in thailand there's this massive network of temples where people can just walk into a temple and get food and water and clothing and shelter so you don't really see people on the streets much in thailand looking for for money or food because there's this huge support system not just the temples but families help each other to do that kind of thing too. So it's very rare that I'll see somebody on the street and in certain situations I will help them. But it's not money that I give people. I always give them food or water or something like that because I know that in some situations they might be using drugs and I'm not interested in seeing the money go to that. So I'll take the time to provide resources. But that's very minimal compared to all the other things that I do. The vast majority of the giving and sharing that I do is around these teachings and dedicating my time, effort, energy, and resources to writing books, giving them away for free, offering these classes for free, having personal guidance, and just giving as much of this as I can because I know this is the solution to all the problems and difficulties that we encounter in the world. So that's what I choose to do with my time, but everybody's different. Not everybody's going to do the same thing that I do. So we've all got to find what we feel is best and what we feel is the way that we can support.
2: Is there a way, is there a way for a student to repay his teacher for his generosity?
1: I don't think of it as repaying somebody. Like if somebody donated, make a donation from me, I think of it as an exchange of energy that... Of course, for me, I have no expectation of any donations that somebody would share with me in terms of their time, effort, energy, or resources. But when people do, I'm always very appreciative and have a lot of gratitude that people do choose to practice generosity with me. But it's not a requirement or a prerequisite for my help. I'm willing to help and provide support to everybody and anybody. And then where people are making an offering to me What they're actually doing is they're supporting other people to learn these teachings. So it's not giving money to me or giving an offering to me. It's actually making an offering to the community that by helping me to purchase a little bit of food or a little bit of water, a little bit of clothing or a little bit of medical care or whatever. I also use the donations to support books and classes and things like this and other things that I do. So paying for things like Zoom and lights and microphones and computers and things that I need in order to host these classes. So any donations that are coming into me, there's very little amount of it that I use for sustaining of my life because my wife still works and she actually buys me a lot of food. I use very little of it to sustain my life. And what I use it for is I use it to go directly back into sharing these teachings through purchasing things like Zoom and all the other resources that I need in order to share these teachings. So people before you have already made donations to allow these teachings to get to this point to reach you. And now your donations are helping the people behind you to be able to get access to these teachings. So that's what your generosity is going towards. It's not going to Support me necessarily it's going to help and support our community so that more and more people can come into this community and learn and practice these teachings. but of course, there is a certain amount that I'm using in order to pay for for food, but luckily here in Thailand things are very inexpensive, so I can live with very little money in order to support myself and then use the other resources to be able to allow the teachings to continue and be offered more and more prevalently in our community and find more and more ways to be able to offer them in our community.
2: Many thanks for all what you do teacher.
1: Yeah you're welcome. Very pleased to to help everybody
2: well on YouTube Patricia writes, I do not understand how the mind can want something.
1: So the wanting is the craving desire attachment. This is the mental longing with a strong eagerness. This is how the mind has certain expectations or longing. And this is what the unenlightened mind does, is it thinks that by acquiring something specific, that it's going to experience these pleasant feelings. And by longing for this and actually acquiring it, you get these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, or elation. And as soon as the mind experiences those, it feels so great and it kind of reinforces falsely to the mind that you were on a worthwhile pursuit. That by chasing your wants and the objects of your affections, you got these pleasant feelings as a result. But the mind doesn't realize that those pleasant feelings are temporary and they fade away. Or the mind doesn't realize that sometimes you can't get the objects of your affection And it actually experiences these painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, or guilt, or shame, or fear. So the the real problem is that the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection, wanting these pleasant feelings. And for some situations, when it gets those pleasant feelings, it falsely reinforces that this was a worthwhile pursuit. But the mind doesn't realize three days later, or a week later, or however long later, gosh, I'm feeling miserable right now. Why is that? Why do I feel so miserable? You don't connect the dots that it was actually you chasing after the pleasant feelings a week ago or a month ago that actually led to these painful feelings. And that's where the mind is in this delusion or this confusion or this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. When you connect the dots and you realize that the wanting and the longing For these pleasant feelings and chasing after the objects of your affection is the actual real problem, then you can train the mind to cut that off and no longer do that and no longer base its inner feelings on this condition of something that it's chasing after. And not only do you eradicate those temporary dissatisfying conditioned pleasant feelings, but you also eradicate these painful feelings and these neither painful nor pleasant. So it's the mind longing for these pleasant feelings through the senses, the six senses, that is really the big problem that is causing the mind all this discontentedness. And that's why things like generosity train the mind to let go and others that you need as part of a well-developed, comprehensive life practice to actively train the mind in various aspects of this path to no longer do that, which I just talked about. But there's also other aspects of the mind that need to be trained as well. And when you do, you can move the mind to being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, permanently, no longer experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever.
2: What's your advice for someone who has attempted for two, three, four, five times to cultivate these Brahma Vyaras, but didn't see quick results?
1: The problem is that the mind wants quick results. That's that craving-desire attachment. The mind always wants what it doesn't have. It's always chasing the objects of its affection. So even when it learns about enlightenment or these Brahma-Vaharas, if a mind develops craving around it and chases after it and wants it quickly, then it's not going to actually acquire it. It's not going to actually cultivate it in the mind. So you've got to understand that it's a gradual progression. So there's this gradual training of gradually moving the mind to these Brahma into enlightenment. There's this gradual practice that you incorporate and then you experience this gradual progression. There's nothing about enlightenment that's quick. This is one of the biggest myths in the Buddhist community that the Buddha sat under the tree and meditated and instantly attained enlightenment. This is the biggest myth ever because if you look at the words of the Buddha, he says that it's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. And anybody who's experienced enlightenment knows that because everything you've ever done in your life has been gradual. How long did it take you to learn how to read and write? How many years? You're probably still misspelling words at whatever age you are now. There's probably still words you don't know how to spell yet and that you, your grammar isn't 100% correct. So we're gradually learning all the time. So this progression to these four Brahma Vaharas and practicing generosity as well as enlightenment itself, it's a gradual progression. So while we understand it's gradual, we're also not interested in allowing the mind to be complacent either. So rather than allow the mind to be complacent, we practice this enlightenment factor of energy, where the mind is enthusiastic and motivated to actually move forward and actually apply effort and energy towards developing these healthy mental states and actually attaining enlightenment. But it's not also craving it so much that it wants it so bad. So not craving and holding on to it, wanting these things so bad, but also not being complacent either and finding that middle. That's where you can experience the gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress.
2: Well, on Facebook, uh, a chit writes Can you practice fully the teachings even as a householder up to which stage of enlightenment?
1: As a household practitioner, you can practice all the teachings and attain enlightenment as an Arahant. There's no reason why a household practitioner wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment this is another big myth in the Buddhist communities. Some people believe that a household practitioner can attain enlightenment, that you have to be ordained in order to attain enlightenment. But this is actually untrue. Even during the lifetime of the Buddha and even now, there's household practitioners who are enlightened based on their work. There's two different lifestyles, ordained and household practitioners, and these lifestyles have different choices. There's different pros and cons to each one of these two lifestyles. But training of the mind and eradicating the pollution of mind, you can accomplish enlightenment as an ordained practitioner or a household practitioner. Thanks, Lord,
2: teacher. These are all the questions to have
1: for today. All right. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for joining today's class. And I'd like to say, may you all have a very wonderful new year and embark on this new year with a renewed sense of uh, encouragement and motivation to learn and practice towards the attainment of enlightenment. I'd also like to take a moment to thank anybody who has made any offerings to me over the past year and helped support me to get to this point where I'm able to offer these classes online and in person and offer the personal guidance and be able to share all these books and resources at no cost because your offerings and your generosity is what really helps me to be able to do the things that I do to share these teachings with you. So whether you've offered your time, effort, energy, or resources, I really appreciate that. There's moderators, there's people who have proofread these books. There's people that have done research to help me find the references of these books. There's people that have uh, bought me lunch here or there or people that have helped me in one way or another or made a donation here or there. All the different offerings and generosity that you guys have practiced with me over the year. I would just like to thank all of you and I make an effort to do that as you make your offerings and on a monthly basis as well. But I just thought that Being the beginning of the year like this, I'd like to just take a moment and thank all of you for all your generosity and support because it's your support that allows me to continue to do what I do and share all these teachings with you. So thank you all so much for your support. And as you know, these classes will continue as we go forward into the new year. I'm gonna be continuing to offer these online classes as well as classes here in Chiang Mai and as people invite me to travel around the world, I'll go out and travel to different places and offer these teachings at different places. And you're always welcome to come learn at no cost, openly and freely. You can always learn anything that I have to share. And as you do, you should see the improvement to your life practice. So next week on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 15, which is titled True Love love without attachment this is going to build on all the things that we've already been talking about in this program and this is where you start learning about relationships and how to have relationships where you're not clinging and holding on sabotaging your relationships and crushing your relationships so if you're finding it difficult with your life partner or your children or your friends or family members and you realize that you're you have struggles sometimes where the relationships don't quite seem as peaceful as you'd like them to be, the answers are all in chapter 15. And of course it's the whole path, but specifically chapter 15 is gonna help you to understand how to cultivate true love and practice true love. Because what we think about is love in the unenlightened state actually isn't love at all. There's love in there, I'm sure. But it's tainted with this craving, with this anger, this ignorance. And it's when we get into chapter 15 that I'm going to pull back the covers and help you understand what true love is so that the more you learn about it, you can reflect on it and you can practice it and you can see that your relationships can really blossom when you're not crushing the relationship and you're not sabotaging it with our own pollution of mind so that's what we'll do next sunday and just like all the chapters feel free to read before and after or before and after if you'd like and then on this wednesday we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation so today we talked about loving kindness and that meditation is really important to cultivate that so on wednesday if you'd like to join or you'd like to listen to the replay on either facebook youtube or the podcast you can learn loving kindness meditation and you can practice loving kindness meditation because this is really important to eliminate the anger, hatred, ill will, and all those lesser versions as well. So thank you all for all your support. Thank you all for your dedication and diligence to learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings. I'll see you guys either Sunday or Wednesday, maybe both of those days. Until next time, have a really lovely rest of your day. Take care. Sawadikha.